Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Today we chat with Professor Bronwyn Dalton. Bronwyn is the head of the Department of Management and the director of the Masters of Not-for-Profit and Social Enterprise Program at the University of Technology, Sydney. With a varied and elaborate career, Bronwyn is a wealth of information and today we chat about the future of work styles in Australia and what a four-day work week and purpose-driven organisation could mean for us all. Roman Dalton, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your story and insights with our listeners. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. Roman, tell us, where did it all start for you professionally? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to uni? And yeah, how did you get into what you're doing? Oh, okay. So I am originally from a farm in the middle of nowhere in central west New South Wales. And, you know, went to a great public school at Orange Public at Orange High School, but a big game changer for me, I think, and I have been a constant beneficiary of Australia's amazing not-for-profit sector. Yes. And there's kind of a theme in my life that they've created more opportunities for me and I think mobility for Australians and health outcomes and mental health outcomes than any other sector, and that's why I'm very passionate about the not-for-profit sector and teach in the space and run the degree at, at UTS now. But a big game changer at that particular point after year 12 was Rotary Club sending me on a year exchange and I lived for a year in South Korea with South Korean families. Didn't know where the country was, didn't speak any Korean. I did by the end though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I hear you're fluent in Korean and you've done a, a fair bit with Korea. Uh, during your time, which I'm keen to hear about. But growing up in remote Australia, in remote rural New South Wales, tell us about some of the challenges that people face in remote areas. I think that the infrastructure to support rural Australia has weakened. In fact, I feel that like a lot of areas of life, boomers have it better than actually what some of the challenges facing youth both in rural, regional and urban Australia. 
So we had better funded public school system, free school bus, the a more integrated community because it was a smaller community. Now that same town is suffering severe youth-related issues, in particular the influx in rural Australia by the drug ice. So there are right along the central west, there's towns with huge problems with regards to that uh, addiction to that particular drug. Employment, the whole tree change thing has made housing really unaffordable and there's not enough housing. So for me to reflect on my challenges, I feel is a bit disingenuous given I know that the current young people are probably faced with more significant challenges than we did back when I was finishing school. But there were the usual challenges of growing up in the bush, of being isolated and perhaps not being able to access the same types of arts and cultural opportunities. But I didn't really miss much. I gained much more. So you benefited from the community not-for-profit organisations growing up in rural Australia. It helped give you the opportunity to go and study overseas. What did you study when you went overseas? Just was it? So I've, you know, just continuing the theme of the not-for-profit sector. So that allowed me to study in South Korea. Then I came back and did my degree in politics and Asian studies at ANU. Then got a scholarship to do my master's in South Korea and then another scholarship to do my PhD at Oxford in Korean politics, but all along the way working with community organisations. Now I say community organisations, but in kind of a bit more in the extreme and actually the heart of what not-for-profit sector does Mm -hmm. is it's the guardian of democracies. And I was involved in the pro-democracy movement in South Korea, which were basically a coalition of of community organised NGOs, students joining together and rising up and bringing down the dictatorship. So the dictatorship in South Korea fell through the power of community. The dictatorship in the Philippines, there was a whole wave, uh, Samuel Huntington calls it the third wave of democracy, driven by the social movements Mm. who are the parents of our profit sector. What year are we talking in South Korea? uh, The South Korean dictator was overthrown in... 1987. Okay. I was there, 88, then again, 1991. So, yeah. yeah, it was a period of transition. Did you knowingly choose Korea or did Korea choose you? I want to go to France. I was obsessed oh. with going to France. I was in high school and <clears throat> was studying French and all I wanted was a French boyfriend. So I applied through Rotary to go to France to study And I still remember the day, it was really hot, and I was standing in a hall in Wagga Wagga, and they said, oh, great news, Bronwyn, your country is Korea, and I burst into tears. Wow. And then I had to go home, because there wasn't an internet back then, and pull out the atlas to look up where (laughs) South Korea was on a map. How far it was from France. (laughs) Yeah, and how far it was. But uh, Yes, I didn't get to go to France. I went later. But it was still a developing country then. GDP of only, I think, about 900 US, so so it's quite poor. So I've witnessed Korea go from yeah. zero to hero. From the, it's fact, it's only one of two countries last century that has gone from third world to first world status. Is that correct? And uh, it was such a privilege, uh, you know, if you're interested in human nature and 
politics and sociology to be part of a society that goes through that transition from agrarian, dirt poor, yeah. to super high-tech, rich, and, and, and every year see the changes, it's been fascinating. And so Korea, I mean, were, were you in rural Korea? Were you in the – When I – yeah. Well, for my exchange, okay. I, I mean, it's a small country, but I was in the centre of the okay. country in Taejeon. That was the name of the town. But later I did my master's degree in Seoul. Okay. And, and I mean, such a cultural difference compared to, uh, I assume, to Australia. I haven't been in Korea. But, I mean, tell me a bit about the cultural difference. Yeah, it was my first time overseas. At the age of, like, 18? 17. 17. And I landed on the grass airport of Busan, which is down the south. Like, there isn't even any grass left in Korea. It's so developed. (laughs) But walking across the – you could only fly to – you couldn't fly to Korea from Australia. You could only fly from Tokyo. Wow. Yeah, so I had to stay overnight in Tokyo. Yeah, yeah, massive cultural – yeah. Yeah. I hadn't really eaten much chilli and they ate it three times a day, kimchi, three times a day, breakfast, lunch and dinner. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't even had any of the foods. Or, yeah, everything was different. How long did it take for you? Oh, you obviously immerse yourself in the culture, but how long did it take for you to learn the language? I'm still learning. It's quite, it's a hard language, but I was, I was pretty good by the time I left and, and could communicate, but it's a lifelong endeavour to master Korean. But Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I did study it at ANU and yeah. afterwards. So. And so you've obviously been back there a few times in, lot, in your yeah. time. <laughs> Tell me, what are some of the key takeaways and how your experience in Korea has helped shape who you are? Oh, well, Korea has been a source of inspiration, the, the fact that the country came from, as I said, yes, zero Paul. to hero. I mean, it's, it, it's a unique story in the history of the planet that they went from the biggest aid recipient to the first country that was a big aid recipient to now to be an aid donor. Yeah. And the mechanisms through which we can secure human development and better standard of living for millions of people, there's a lot to be learned in that case because of its, its success. Some people say, oh, I'll leave it all to the market and... You know, they were great entrepreneurs. No, actually it was a command economy, but it was it was a very carefully planned economy that fed into the dictates of the market. So, you know, it inspires me not to be absolutist in in our approaches. It's got to be 100% this way or that. There's, there's this sweet spot that, that yeah. we can look for there. My friends and, of course, through South Korea, I've become an expert on North Korea and been to North Korea. In fact, I took my kids there on holiday. They're probably the youngest Australians to ever be there. <laughs> how, how long ago was oh, this? Yeah, so what? I comment on North. This is not really related to mental health conference. No, that's okay. No. We'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Although there's definitely mental health issues in both countries. I think a certain generation of North Koreans all have post-traumatic stress. Yeah. You can see them ticking in the streets and stuff because of the famine. They lost estimated a million people. To starvation, mid-90s. So that's the kind of devastation that a whole society doesn't get over. Anyway, yeah, but I mean, studying North Korea is absolutely fascinating. We've got a book coming out with Rutledge, me and my colleague, Kyung Jae-chong, on the women of North Korea, and I've been publishing 
with her extensively on that topic. But lots of things that inspire me yeah. about North Korea and South Korea. Tell me about the role, because you've been involved in a fair bit of stuff around the role of women in Korea. Tell me about that, and because and, I, I don't understand the culture, but tell me how that's played out, and, and is it progressing? Are they getting more rights? I mean, is there anything around that? Both South and North which was obviously one country, was a deeply Confucian, deeply patriarchal society, mm. and remnants of that paternalism remain on both sides. Women are under significantly underrepresented in political levels of leadership, but even in other spheres, both South and North. For example, South Korea is dominated by a few big companies, in particular Samsung. But in business, it's very rare to see a woman at a senior level. So both places are pretty sexist. Mm. But I must say that North Korea takes the cake. (laughs) It maybe could win an award for being the most patriarchal and sexist country. But the fascinating thing is that that mindset blindsided them to a monumental and significant grassroots change in that society because they didn't factor women in as having being an agent of change. So when the famine occurred, as I mentioned, from mid-1990s to uh, towards the end of the 1990s, and children all, all over the country, families were starving to death, women quietly went about finding, marshalling the resources to value out at night to the, for the first time to set up illegal market stalls wow. and created the market system of North Korea under the nose of officials and leadership obsessed and preoccupied with managing the movements of men. Who cares what the women do? They're irrelevant. Mm. <laughs> but by discounting that, they didn't keep tabs on their capacity to fundamentally bring in capitalism to North Korea to the point where now North Koreans, there used to be a public distribution system where you used to get state-supplied rice, etc. That completely collapsed in the famine. They didn't have enough. The market stepped in in its place and now North Koreans rely almost wholly on the markets for their food and their ability to earn money and everything. So the whole place has changed. And it was a female entrepreneurial-led revolution. Isn't that incredible? Mm. It's amazing to study. I mean, yeah, I mean, I see what – because, I mean, I don't hear – you know, you you read stuff in the news or what have you, but, I mean, to really understand the culture or the history behind it and and the actual stories is incredible. Yeah, so they monitored the movements of men and made them turn up to jobs where they did nothing all day because there was no more resources – And then they checked where they were and so forth, but they didn't invest or think they needed to monitor the movements of women. Yeah. Jokes on them. (laughs) Yeah, serves them right. Okay, so so then tell me, so from that, so the passion with Korea and the fascination with the culture and what's happening over there, you come back into Australia and what, how do you get into what you're doing now? So I, I do have many... Different strands. I didn't know we were going to go, go into them because, yeah, I'm a Korean expert, but I'm also really passionate and teach about civil societies, yeah. you know, NGOs, not-for-profits. Another big area that I have been 
interested in and what I focused on my PhD was anti-corruption, which was really why the social movements were activated to bring democracy in a lot of places. It was in the form of an anti-corruption movement. And that real interest in corruption, I didn't want to go straight to a uni. I I had studied what was held up as the global model for anti-corruption watchdogs in the world, which was the ICAC, ICAC, in New South Wales. Mm -hmm. And so I asked to work there and they hired me. So I was a corruption prevention officer at the ICAC, Independent Commission Against Corruption, and there (laughs) they, because of my academic background, I was encouraged to develop some strategies to prevent corruption in universities, which at the time were state agencies or considered themselves, everyone considered themselves state agencies. Right. Long story, but when the GST came in, all the unis converted to being not-for-profit to avoid paying GST. Long story. Gotcha. But at that time, they were still considered state. So we had jurisdiction to investigate corruption in New South Wales universities. So that's what I did. Wow. Uh, and now, you know, some many of the colleagues that I have <laughs> yeah. encountered yeah. since, I had known in another way before. <laughs> Is that right? Every every reorganisation, corruption is rife and I really am a huge supporter of federal ICAC. Right. Yeah. That's still not the case at the moment though. No, they're still fighting for it. Albanese has promised it. Okay. But you could kind of understand why Scott Morrison didn't want one given he was minister for everything. Yes. <laughs> yes, no, I understand that. So uh, I think if we go back to what was the link then with corruption? So, and what Anti- did you get? Anti corruption movement yep. in South Korea, which drove the. Okay. Yeah. And after that, anyway, I ended up being an academic and a professor, Mark Lyons, he's considered kind of the father of not for profit research in Australia. He hired me to work with him on, and still is, Australia's largest and oldest program for -for not-for-profit management at UTS and in the business school. And I've continued, hopefully, faithfully, to serve that higher purpose of the building the capacity of the not-for-profit sector to enable them to continue to serve the public good. We owe so much to that sector. It's the largest employer in Australia. 8% of Australians work in the not-for-profit sector. Is that right? Yeah. Its revenue is bigger than the state of Tasmania. It's a massive, not the well, but bigger than agriculture, bigger than manufacturing. Yeah. This, is, this is a significant sector. And Australians rely on the sector from the moment they open their eyes in the morning till they go to sleep. We wouldn't have the funds to run our hospitals. We wouldn't have the support for the schools, both public and private are not-for-profit. But in every domain, the not-for-profit sector is filling a need that the market cannot. Yeah. And so how do you make the link from the corruption side of things to workplace mental health? (laughs) How did that link come about? I have been at UTS a long time and now I'm head of the department And I've been teaching across a range of subjects and doing research into various things. I've always been interested in 
how to promote employee well-being. And as a manager, I've got a large number of reports, over 60. And I've been trying to do as much research in that area and around flexible work in particular and its benefits for employee mental health and other outcomes too, for business outcomes, for productivity, et cetera. So let's talk about that flexibility in the workplace. It's a hot topic. Very hot. Some people were forced into it through COVID and, and being flexible were letting people have to let people work from home. But tell us about, do you think that that COVID has sped that up? And do you think it was inevitable we're getting to this point anyway? It's just, it just rapidly shortened the time frame in order to get us to this point. And secondly, what do you think of what we've done or gone through is here to stay? You're quite correct. COVID was a rapid accelerator of some pre-existing trends, but it also, I think, created some new dynamics as well. So some were already there, but I think some shoots are new. The idea of work was been around a long time, but it's that working from home, apparently even in April this year, when there wasn't a lockdown, 46% of Australians worked from home at least one day a week. Wow. So that's that's after the pandemic. So it has set in train, set in motion, some changes that are going to be here for the long haul. So flexible work came on to take on new dimensions, whereas the bulk of flexible work arrangements in the past, and in particular I'm studying the four-day work, Work week. Yes. That used to mean you did five days worth of hours in four days. So you still did your thirty-five hour or your forty-hour week. You just had to do it, had to do longer days. So that. Okay. So not just working four days in a shortened week. You're actually doing full time hours. Okay, that's what it used to be. Okay, got you. Now called a compressed work week. Yes. Bit like the public service did flexi time. Yes. Got you. But the, now the four-day work means 80-100-100, which is 80% of the work hours but 100% of the productivity. Instead of them working the same amount of hours in less days, we're doing less 80%. 80% of the hours, working less but being more productive during your time. Yes. Okay. And that's a theory. A theory. Is, that, is that being tested? I think the UK is currently doing a big test with this, isn't it? It is the hot topic. It's the topic du jour at yeah. the moment. And many economies are very keen to experiment with it. They're doing a trial in the UK over the summer. But in Europe, they, for example, Germany, other countries are looking to see if they can adopt it permanently. What's missing is the research. Yeah. And there is a lot of research going on on these trials overseas but we've been commissioned by one of the largest multinationals in the world mm-hmm. to really do a deep dive. We started 18 months ago. So okay. we've got really good baseline right through the pandemic and we're going to continue the trial. But our first uh, tranche of results are all in after 18 months and we could really look at a much broader range of variables to get a quite detailed picture of not only the outcomes of the four-day work 
week in terms of employee outcomes, business outcomes, but also I think more importantly, the critical success factors that you need to make it work. Right. Because changing the hours itself is not actually the key to a success. The key to a four-day work week success is the organisation's ability to invest in employees to enable them to change the way they work. So it's right. new ways of working is the answer to the four-day work week. Okay, not, not doing the same old methodologies, processes no. in order to, to just be have a, create the outcome in a short amount of time. You're saying that the workplace needs to support it. You mean through automate, automation, through processes or just… There's some process optimization, but also there's got to be a kind of cultural shift. Like we jokingly, now I must at this point mention Rowena Ditzel, who is the PhD student who is driving this research. Yep. She's fantastic. And she has been collecting this data assiduously. As we, Rowena and I were joking the other day, I said, well, let's call our journal article where we publish it, take less meetings and get off the phone. <laughs> yes. So there's those sorts of really fundamental ways of using going to work to have a deeply collaborative experience. Uh -huh. So actually do having meetings when you go there and using working from home for deep work, if you like. Right. So there's, there's those sort of process changes. But you just can't ask people to absorb that or have a list of rules. You've got to create the, a really positive culture around different ways of working. And creating a positive culture has always got to come from the top. And so the top has got to model the behaviour, not say, aren't you lucky or you guys do four days a week, woe is me. I watched an article, sorry, a TV clip on Channel 9 yesterday on the four-day work week in the UK. Yes. And they were interviewing the employees and they were talking about their traffic-like system that they had on their desks. But the boss said, but I, of course, still work Saturdays and Sundays. <laughs> you know. So what that signals is yeah. it. You know the people who say they're busy all the time. What they're signalling is I'm dedicated to this company and my own career and you're not. You're not, yeah. It's, it's passive-aggressive, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, they're making them feel guilt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, you know, so that, that sort of cultural change. But another big factor I think is that leadership in terms of modelling the behaviour but also leadership in being authentic that you, what you're doing – is actually about employee well-being. Yep. And this is where I question, I'm a bit on the fence about whether COVID's going to, how far COVID's going to change things because I see this kind of Jekyll and Hyde struggle in corporations now culturally where they want to embrace the benefits of flexible work but they certain managers are so steeped in command and control. Mm-hmm. They want FaceTime, and I started to be gendered, but a lot of senior guys want their see their employees slip in. Yeah. I heard a big bank is making everyone come in, even though they did a review and found they were more productive before. Is that so right? Why, so why are they doing it? Because they want to 
Alpha hats to come in and be more collaborative or whatever. I feel it's the thrill of the – it's a power game. Right. To, to know that I'm in here and you're out there or well, to – Well, no, yeah, yeah, to be able supervise. to – Yeah, FaceTime is yeah. like just having that power to make somebody else – it's an exercise of power to make someone else sit there all day. Yes. The control, the wrestle yeah. of control. And it's – that power game can – you're talking about how South Korea can – it might inspire me, but it also is full of salutary lessons. South Korea has the longest work hours in the day. You can't leave the office until your boss leaves. So they spend hours waiting, yet it's the least productive per hour yeah. worker. So there is no relationship between yeah. numbers of hours worked and productivity. It is a power game. Yeah. And humans don't change. Like, you know, I... I I didn't. I've even forgot to bring a mask to the airport yesterday. Like mm. I was embarrassed to say, but that's how quick we forget. Yeah. And I'm thinking we're all talking about the future of work, and we'll all be working from home, and you know we'll produce research that shows how to make it all happen, and for the good of business outcomes as well as employee well-being. But those other behaviours, me forgetting the mask. Senior business, senior bosses wanting to their staff in the room. Yeah, uh, I don't know if we we can change human nature that much. It's a deeper issue, isn't it? Really, because it's, it seems to be ingrained in how things are brought up. But it does take something to change in order for that to change. So that's why ma- it cultures everything. Yeah, and maybe the study will, you know, once you know it's all published and and the findings. Because I think, I mean, do you think now people are, are wanting? to be flexible. I mean, you sort of have to in order to attract the people now because it's harder to get people. But I mean, do you think that, do you think it's that flexibility, we're going to go all that way and everyone will be pretty similar in what they're going to roll it out based on, or do you think it's more unique? Each company is going to find their own little... Well, there's a couple of concerns I have. One is that one size doesn't fit all and we should be flexible about flexible work. Yeah. In our research, we found that it didn't suit everybody and we tried to work out what that variable was or the variables that people who didn't find flexible work as rewarding or practiced it as, or implemented it as well. And one of the variables was life stage. So for certain people, they might find going to work a place of friendship, social contact. It might be for their mental health. Work might be a protective factor. You know, you're getting on, you don't have kids, you don't have kids. Work can be a big thing for a lot of people. Academics see work as so tied to their identity. It's incredible. Yes. I saw that when we went through the horrific downsizing, how tough it was on academics who couldn't be academics anymore because of, you know, structural changes. And as a manager, it nearly killed me as well, having to implement that. But the point is work, so you you shouldn't make flexible work necessarily compulsory. We should be flexible. But the other important thing is that it should be genuine about employee well-being. So you shouldn't seek out and penalise individuals who don't adopt it. Right. Right. So a- as you see it rolling out with the flexibility, you're going to see companies in, you know, adopt different things. Even within a company, do you think we're going to see the flexibility shift from individuals to individuals based on 
what their unique needs are or do you think it's still going to be a holistic approach for everybody, this is it? Well, I think that there's going to be some entrepreneurial leadership that will set the tone. Companies like Atlassian, mm-hmm. who don't require staff to go in, <clears throat> I mean, there's a huge saving in terms of rent as well because your yeah. footprint in it's worrying some of our big city space owners yeah. that they can't get rent out their floors. Yeah. So once those sort of companies set a new tone, I hope it can institute some significant changes. But I suspect it will be with the upstarts, with the millennial-led organisations, with startups. Tech. Yeah, yeah the, the the new techs, the social enterprises, they are going to lead the charge to change the future of work. Do you reckon, I mean, if, if you look at Atlassian, I mean, the struggle that, that you then have is if your entire workforce is working from home, how do, I mean, it's more important to try and have that stickiness, that culture, that, that you know, we're, we're in it together. Because if you're at home on your computer, if you're doing work for me or you're doing work for somebody else, really you can shift a job but still be at home doing your thing. So it feels like it's harder to create that stickiness for that company, which is probably where that purpose and, you know, companies like that have to work harder in that respect, would they not? Yeah, so they're not letting staff stay at home permanently. What they're seeing coming to work is about is that's the collaborative space. The office is the collaborative space. And when you're in the office, you use that as an opportunity to – and they've tried to drive this. Creativity. By having kind of creativity pitches, ideas, exchanges. I'm not an expert on the lesson, but I know they dedicate, I think, every Friday – where people share their ideas and, and go off and develop or something. Yeah. But the point is is that they they want a noisy office <laughs> of yes. people talking and meeting and you can do deep work at home. So you still need it. Yeah. But we're facing a problem. In fact, I was asking for some advice about this. Maybe you can give me some advice. Because universities are at a crossroads yes. in terms of how to offer their – their mode of delivery of their subjects. Now, we're one of the largest departments in the country, the, the management department, I'm head of that. We've got about 80 subjects, quite a lot at the postgrad. We offered one online, one face-to-face of the same subjects so people could have the choice. Everyone, oh, we had to do that because we had students still in China and so on. Right. But everyone enrolled in the online. Wow. Yet, I'm... Um, personal believer that face-to-face delivers much better networking opportunities. Yeah. You get more out of the class. If I, I would agree with yeah. that. And we are put on barbecues. We're going with an Indigenous organisation, Tribal Warrior, on the weekend to go on a cruise. So I'm trying to create opportunities for the students to actually meet face-to-face. But they just prefer to do online. And if the other, if I stop offering online, probably go to another institution if that's yeah. their strong preference yet as so i asked uh, my table at the yep. at the conference yesterday well, what can i do about this and uh, and they were all reflecting yeah well postgrad we've been at work all day picked up the kids we don't want to you know drive into uni at six o'clock at night yeah right it just suits our lifestyle better 
And then we had a fantastic talk by Nicole Ranson, and afterwards the questions were all, we're hiring these graduates and they're not socialised <laughs> properly. They haven't, they didn't seem to be across the content, but they're also not great at interacting. All yeah. of this was coming out. And yeah. I'm thinking we're not preparing people for the future, but the, fu- but the graduates are deciding with their own preferences yeah. as graduates to do online. So anyway, there's these challenges we have to negotiate. Yeah. This online's good for some things, face-to-face yeah. good for others. And the way it's always been done doesn't necessarily mean it's the way that it should be done moving forward, but I would agree with you. I, I would think a little bit of a mixture would be the, the best way to go moving forward. It's like conferences, you know, because when the biggest fear in conferencing was that virtual was always going to take out face-to-face. Yeah. But if after you go through COVID and the amount of times you sit there looking at the computer and the Zooms and the Teams, you're like, oh, man, if I have to sit down in front of all these screens. And so people are now – I tell you the on, thing that, that lost its shine first for me was – Okay, everyone join us on Friday night for Zoom drinks. Uh, it's like, man, I've been on that Zoom all day. I'm not going to have a drink. <laughs> well, and now I feel like with the pendulum swung the other way, so we're yeah. all, all of a sudden now we're sick of the computer, so we're all trying to get out every chance we can. And I think we'll ba- come back to that middle ground where, you know, if you can save time and resources just to see a couple of little, couple of talks, that'll be great. But for the most part, I don't think – I think that face-to-face still is valuable yeah. and people still want that connection. And, yeah. and like you're saying, we've got kids coming through that haven't experienced that workforce or the study, even studying with people, yeah. they're all sort of doing it remotely in their own time at their own pace and, and that will bring up other challenges as we move towards working with – teams but i guess if they've only studied remotely and they work remote you, you just worry about the communication yep um, exactly skills. And, and i don't blame them but a lot of people turn their cameras off so i'm not sure what's yeah. going on anyway so if we go to then as we as we look to the future we're going a bit over time but it's i've really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation <laughs> Bronwyn. but if you look to the future, what do you think are going to be the key things for a workplace to remain a preference of choice by employees to choose to want to go and work there? What sort of flexibility, what sort of well-being initiatives are we, are we going to have to see for this moving forward? I think that there's often going forward, the successful corporation will be driven by social mission. Yes, purpose. Absolutely. So purposeful organisations will be successful in a whole range of areas, not only in securing stakeholder support and so-called licence to operate, but they will attack the talent because this generation is a purpose-driven generation. They're passionate about fighting climate change. They're passionate about trying to do good and realise change outside of their lane, if you like. They've got a bigger vision. So... High-performing, socially-minded, talented millennials will only work for organisations that are purpose-driven and have a social mission. And that really has got to be so much deeper than a slogan on the side of a wall or… Or a web page that says, CSR, this is what we're doing. None of that greenwashing or social washing or… Box ticking. Yeah. So, and, and to achieve that, they've got to be much more vigorous in opening their social activities to 
rigorous evaluation, not just having a report called a CSR report with a picture of a smiling Aboriginal child on it. Yes. They've actually got to do the study to say this intervention in this community or this program that we funded in this community, Mm. children had a literacy, average literacy age of five and after our program they had a reading age of nine. And this is an independent study that proved it. So organisations have always been very rigorous in measuring their financial return on investment. Yes. But it's time now to show the world their social return on investment and not just self-report against, you know, UN SDGs and things. That's all self-report. Yes. And so do you think, what what about flexibility around the work environment? Yeah, so the other thing is that charity begins at home, if you like. It's great to be socially minded. You can be Jeff Bezos and fund the local school in a poor area, but then he doesn't pay those children's parents a living wage. So it's what you do for employees inside and inside your own company. That's where your social purpose must begin. You've got to walk the walk for your own employees. So you've got to look at manage their well-being and deliver the types of fulfilling work that a socially minded organisation espouses to to support. So... It's critical for well-being of employees. And the biggest factor, I think, building resilience with mental health is trust and autonomy. So so you do not need to surveil your employees or physically see them sitting at a desk. You give the employees an outcomes-based framework. Look, I don't care how you do it, where you do it. Yeah. Just get, if you if, if that result is at the end of it, that's worth. Not activities-based management. Not hours-based. Hours, activities, outputs, meaningless. You could do, you can make, you know, you can put on 17 podcasts and 17 conferences, but if they're all bad co- <laughs> podcasts yeah. and conferences, Doesn't that's matter. not an outcome. Yeah. We want a good product or a good outcome. And actually, that's how academia is managed. We have to have... You know, students that that have found the experience educative and rewarding and we've got to produce high-quality research. And um, I, as a manager, I don't care where you do it. If you can get that done in an hour of what week, I don't mind. Yeah. That's where – and we've got to give that autonomy back because people who feel they have control over their lives have greater resilience in terms of mental health. Mm. No, that, that certainly makes sense. What, what do you think? Do you think with this study that you guys are doing, you have been doing, do you feel like we'll see more companies see the upside of this four-day work week and transition to that in the future? Well, Europe's going that way, isn't it? They're, a lot of governments. I hope it just doesn't become a perk of the privileged few mm. because it does suit office work. If you're running a factory in the third world, it will affect because your outcome yeah. is outputs. Yeah. They're much closer aligned. So some industries will work better than, than yeah. others. Yeah. And, yeah, and it might be a global south-north economy thing because right. we have multinationals that their business strategy in the manufacturing space is to make 
their things at the cheapest input cost, which yeah. drives them to cheap labour markets. Yeah. I don't think they're getting a four-day week soon. No. In fact, I don't think they work a five-day. I think they work a six, seven, seven day in many instances. Do you see it potentially, you know, being a bit of a norm in Australia, at least, where you think many companies will look to adopt or be more flexible in adopting some of these shorter hours with same outputs? As I say, if it does happen, it'll be driven by this generation coming through. Yeah. But, you know, just talking to that to that person in a bank the other day, that, that even though they proved at work, mm. they're still all made to come back to work. I wonder if that impulse will outlive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, it, it's a bigger... It's a bigger question maybe for us to sort of end. What long-term will we learn from the pa- pandemic and what will we soon forget? Mm. Well, Bronwyn, it's been really good to talk to you. If, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? So I am at UTS, so via email. Yep. My mother put an E in Bronwyn, not a Y, so B-R-O-N-W-E-N dot Dalton at UTS dot E-D-U dot A-U. And I'm on all the socials. Yep. Uh, just look up my name. The r- big report we we're mentioning that on that multinational, I'm calling it a multinational because yes. its name's embargoed at the moment, but that will all be released. The embargo is lifted mid-September. So you might hear me on other media sharing the specific results of that trial. Yeah, well, congratulations on on doing the trial and being involved in such a great project and looking forward to hearing the outcomes of that. But uh, listen, it's been Um, wonderful to talk to you. North Korea to the four-day work. That's it. (laughs) One extreme to the other. Bronwyn, it's been fantastic. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.